Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Luther's 1536 Disputation Concerning Man is our roadmap for a tour of our humankind of being as understood in Western culture from the beginning. In this session, Luther is our guide to Aristotle for a minimum adult understanding of what it means to be members of the language species, our guide to the Apostle Paul for the Christological understanding of being human beings, and a reason for a brief introduction to the philosophy of language in the 20th and early 21st centuries. What is the language species? What does it mean to be members of the language species? What has Luther's 1536 Disputation Concerning Man to teach us? Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. We recently had the privilege of sitting at the feet of Reverend Dr. Gregory Schultz at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. For episode 51 of the Wittenberg Hour, please enjoy plenary session two from Dr. Schultz. So this is the second of our four sessions in studying the Logos during this retreat. Just to remind you about the overview, we began yesterday with the center of gravity, Christ as the Logos incarnate. Today, we're going to look at a complementary piece to that, and that is how being created in the image of the Logos, we are Logos-like creatures, or as we've said in the long Western conversation, we are the Logos species. Our second session today, Lord willing, will be on the major attack that we have been seeing in our generation on the Logos, which is best understood, I think, as postmodernism, though it goes by many other various names. And then finally, tomorrow, we're looking forward to a very strong reply from the Word of God, which is all about Christ the Word, with the institution of marriage, also very much under attack, no secret there, uh, but the uh, strong, winsome, powerful Word of God on that. Uh, so, I think I, in uh, starting with today, I want to keep in mind that move from Christ the Logos to us as the Logos species or the Logos-like beings this way. This is probably a story you've heard before. I can't honestly remember where I got the original version of this from because it was back in the previous millennium when I was still in parish ministry. Um, so the story goes like this. I'd like to think it was from Luther. If some of you have the footnote from where I, I borrowed this, let me know. Uh, so I'd like you to picture yourself in uh, medieval times in a old medieval city outside the cathedral. It is Christmas Day, and inside the church, you can hear all the Hodie Christus, Natus Est, all of the, the songs going on for the praise of Christ's birth, the birth of the Logos in Bethlehem. But outside, outside on those uh, dark, uh, dusty streets, there is an unbeliever stalking around. This disbeliever just can't stand it, right? All of this Christless stuff. Uh, when all of a sudden, along comes Satan. And Satan comes over to this guy, and he picks him up by the collar. You can almost smell the sulfur on his breath, right? Picks, his, picks this guy up by the collar and gives him a roundhouse blow that sends him a quarter mile down the street. Now, 
a disbeliever picks himself up off the ground and he's starting to mouth, what are you doing? But before he can do anything, there is Satan again and he seized him by the collar once more and he is saying right in his face, how dare you? If God had done for me and the angels today what he's done for you human creatures, I'd be in that cathedral right now singing my praises to him. According to John chapter 1, our attention gloms, of course, onto the, the wonderful gospel that the Logos became flesh and tabernacle for a while among us. But you realize, of course, that Satan and the fallen angels have no redeemer. God did not become enspirited to save them in his own counsel. What he has done for us is the envy of the fallen angels. Perhaps we can even hear a bit of holy wonder from the good angels in the Christmas message around the hills of Bethlehem, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So our attention today, while we retain our focus on Christ the Logos, comes now onto us Logos-like creatures for whom he became incarnate. Some definitional work. Um, to begin with, here's a, a chance to pull some thoughts together on the Greek term Logos. So if you can make it out okay, um, you can tell that Logos is actually based on the word Lego, that ought to be an easy one to remember for your vocabulary list, hey? Things that are put and collected together, right, Legos. Um, so the basic sense is to gather. So uh, I'm going to explain that actually, because we are in the image of the Logos, we are um, gathered together in language. There's a kind of fellowship in human language already. Now, if you go on and follow through the senses that the little kid will this digest in our, our favorite uh, dictionary for New Testament words today, we have uh, a number of other nuances that are mentioned here. Calculating, accounting, considering, or evaluating. So, logos as a term can mean very broadly language. I think maybe the pastors here might agree that's the, the broadest uh, overall understanding. And then it comes to mean particular things in particular contexts. We're, of course, mostly concerned within the scriptures, but I can report that this happens in Greek philosophy, too. So it can mean everything from narrative, word, and speech, down to account, promise, conversation, sentence, prose, even a considered or gathered together thing. So love is, is as I said yesterday, an extraordinarily pregnant word, just filled to the brim. Uh, with me. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think Logos is a good spot for us to consider the two different kinds of reading that we're able to do. Huh? Uh, the, we'll borrow this from Augustine. Okay? There's the possibility of uti reading or of frui reading. Uti as in utilitarian reading. So uh, I think this is a great transgression we commit in Christian education sometimes to, you know, to have something we want to say and then you kind of go to the concordance and you find a Bible passage that seems to talk about it and then you put that passage on your emails or your brochures, right? This is absolutely the wrong way to do it. 
That's a good way to handle a car repair manual. Or, respect to our IT people, I think that's all the stuff you write and post is for, right? We go there for what we need, and as soon as our computers are magically working again, then we're done with that. So it's just a utilitarian thing. However, the attitude and disposition that the scriptures deserve would be a fruity reading. We expect to learn much, much more than we brought to the text. We expect God to take hold of us, uh, in effect, and do things to us that we didn't, didn't mean or intend for him to do, but thanks be to God, he does for us. So this is Logos. Um, I'd also like to uh, turn my form from yesterday, also make use of some of the things first developed in an initial, uh, uh, kind of almost very basic way by some of the Greek philosophers, things discovered by Heraclitus, we talked about him yesterday, and today a little bit about Aristotle. So I realize that you probably cannot read this, but I just want you to know it's available out there. This is uh, a quick picture of my late translation of Aristotle's book, Politics. So the Greek is over on the left, and a uh, nice wooden English translation is over on the right. If you want to double-check me, or, of course, go through and learn a lot more than I can produce here, uh, you may want to take a look at Aristotle's writing, Politics. It's not quite what you would expect. It's not what we think of uh, uh, when we think of politics today, um, but it's more the idea of the polis, the gathering, if you will, of, of the human beings. So here, Aristotle gives his definition of the human being. I should give an important footnote. I had indicated when I handed things over to Justin that I'd be talking about Luther's 1536 disputation concerning man today. It just got too long, no matter how I tried to trim it out. So. I'm going to refer you to that, and I want to fess up that I'm getting a lot of the way I'm outlining things from Luther. You know, of course, you know that Luther was quite the Aristotelian scholar, don't you? He actually taught early on, taught and translated Aristotle. So by the way, in Heidelberg, when he talks about not reading Aristotle without uh, danger to your soul, only by becoming a fool in Christ, right? He knows what he's talking about. This is not some sort of they broadside against philosophy. In fact, I think he's talking about Aristotle's context there. That's another conversation. So here in, in uh, Politics Book 1, which you can look up online, this is very accessible. Um, Aristotle says this, the human being is zoan logon echon. Zoan logon echon. Um, once again, whether you're working at your Greek right now or not quite yet, um, that's going to work pretty well for us as English speakers. So the first word, zoan, actually is our word zoo. That's pretty interesting. So zoan shows up how Aristotle's classifying things. This is how he does knowledge and careful thinking. Take a look at the whole cosmos and divide it into categories. So the way this goes is something like this. Look at everything that's observable and thinkable and realizable and discoverable in the cosmos and make the first cut. The first cut is between non-living and living things. And for defining what the human being is, you have to go over to the living side, right? And on the living side, you have a division between, let's say, plants and other living things. And you go to the other living things, the narrower category there. And then, long story short, you finally come down to the animal, not a rock or plant type of being, the animal type being, which is the zoa in here, the zoo, 
and then it's further specialized, categorized, and described, essentially understood by logos. So we are the animal, not rock or plant, or not living kind of being, animal kind of being, animated being, that's characterized by logos. There's our word again, characterized by logos. So this is Aristotle's work. We're going to talk about Aristotle a little bit more, so I won't be late this too much. Another uh, two-page spread from Politics Book One. Here is a fascinating thing that's going to mean more to us than it does to most people taking a look at Aristotle. Aristotle also refers to the logos, the language capacity, the distinguishing characteristic of the human being, refers to this as, wait for it, koinonia, fellowship, fellowship. Uh, I don't think we did another book on fellowship, that's just not in comment. Um, but if, if I were doing it, or you know, if you're doing an essay, I think you might want to start off, not necessarily by rehearsing church fellowship first, but maybe we could benefit from a chapter or a few pages in your essay that would talk about the fellowship of language first. I'm just saying, we already have a togetherness that is there, and this highlights the means, which are the important thing to concentrate on. By what means are we joined together as human beings? Language. By what means does God bring us into fellowship with him? The word, language, the language of scripture, the means of grace, you see. What do we most need today? You already know this. We are dying. People are dying and are killing other people for the sake of Latin conversation among human beings today. So there, there's that, that, that kind of obvious need for fellowship. But where are we actually joined vertically with God to love God and then to love our neighbors ourselves. That's only in Christ that, that fellowship and means establishing the means of grace. Okay, again, there may or may not be a quiz on this one. So, this is a quick uh, excursion into ontology. Why are we doing that? Because um, I'm supposed to give you a bunch of big words here. <laughs> also, uh, are, are you, some of you noticing this too? I'm getting a little tired of people tossing in the word ontology when they wouldn't sound important, and it's clear that they don't really know what they're talking about. So let's let's clean that up. The term ontology, our Greek students out there got this already, is the Greek participle for being, and logos, careful study of being. So let's do that right now. Okay. When I was first teaching introductory classes uh, to, to introduce, especially Lutheran kids, but to introduce folks to philosophy, I had the idea that I needed to be as visual and vivid and hands-on as possible because, oh, well, let's face it, philosophy is pretty abstract sometimes. Also, that can be its virtue, but that's a new discussion too. So I did this. I did this actually for a couple of years running. I brought into, uh, the, into the classroom of Philosophy 101 a table like the ones that we've got outside, or on the outside, and uh, set it up this way. Over on the left side of the table, I put a rock, so I bring along, uh, got some nice agate book, bookends that I could get, put, put a couple of those on. And then next to that, I put a plant, uh, often for my office, and therefore often not in very healthy shape, but, but alive anyhow. Okay, and then next to the plant, and see what I'm doing right next to the plant, I needed 
uh, an example to animals, so of course I brought along Captain Smith. Captain Smith was the name of our kid's hamster. Time. Fans of Calvin and Hobbes will know what's going on. And the rest of you read some Calvin and Hobbes. Are the same. All right, so Captain Smith um, followed in turn by Captain Smith Jr. and Captain Smith III uh, as Captain Smith passed away. Right? Um, I put him there in a little plastic ball and just kind of get that tucked in with a couple books so he'd be moving there but not too far. And then off the end of the table here, I would look for. Um, the most confident-looking freshman in class and get her in to volunteer to come up and stand here. Didn't have to do an IRB uh, you know, thing to get permission to do that back in those days. I, but anyhow, so a human experiment, have the, the uh, students stand up here. Okay, so here's what I'd like to point out. We have here four different kinds of behavior on ontology. If you start over at the rock on your left, what can we say about the being the rock? It is matter. What else? Brilliant. That's about it. Right? We can describe the matter in different ways. I think we'll probably just take a, maybe a half a page in your lab book to say everything that can be said about this. You know, the matter, the volume, maybe the GPS location, I don't know. But that's about it for the rock. So let's just call that M. A rock is matter. That's it. Move over to the plant. What can we say about the plant? It's made of matter. How can you tell? Visit my office in two more weeks. The plant is probably going to have died. Um, however, a healthy plant is characterized by matter plus life. Matter plus life. So let's say that that's the X factor. By the way, a little bit of epistemological humility, knowledge humility here. We don't know how to define life. Who's kidding? It's more like, you know, the Supreme Court judge who said, uh, I don't, don't know how to define pornography, but I know when I see it. <laughs> uh, so we know life when we see it, right? So the plant is life plus matter. Now, if you go to the animal, Captain Spit, right? Captain Spit is made of matter. How do we know that? Well, I hinted that previous Captain Spits had died, and we buried them with the ceremony in the back. I'm not the kind of guy who would dig up an animal that we probably bury to make the point, but we know that, that he returned to matter, right? Um, also, while he's alive, though, he is alive. How can you tell? Because you can put an animal under anesthetic and bring it up again, right? So we've got some, we've got some, oh, sorry, just slip. You can tell he's alive from what I mentioned before, the difference between the dead. But then he's got this additional factor. The additional factor to life is consciousness. I was going to say, there, how can you tell that an animal has consciousness? It can be put to sleep or fall asleep and be waking up again. Right. Also, we can describe that consciousness a little bit. There's not too much to describe. It's a basic self-awareness of one's environment. How do I know that? Oh, it's Captain Smith again. Uh, we, at the same time, we have the Captain Smiths among us. We also have an amazing border colleague named Jazz. Uh, and Jazz was bright as old ghetto for a dog, uh, but wanted to be in thick things. So we tell the kids, okay, if you're going to play with Captain Spiff, just remember to keep him in the hall. And of course, what did that mean? Captain Spiff was going to be free rolling in the bedroom pretty quick. He was going to get out of that ball somehow. And then Jazz, the dog, would come in, and Captain Spiff would hightail it to the back of the kid's closet, you know, where there was laundry and stuff on the floor. Why? 
self-preservation, self-awareness, response to the environment, awaken to sleep, conscience. Okay, now to the freshman, right? What do we know about the kind of being that a freshman is? Matter, dust you are, dust you shall return. Life, right? Consciousness, basic animal consciousness, that's certainly true, how do we know? Not that this has ever happened to me, but presumably a student could fall asleep in class and then, you know, a, a certain um, great professor would read a philosophy textbook and just accidentally drop that on the desk in front of them and they wake up again. Okay? But that's not all. The kind of consciousness that human beings have is absolutely remarkable. So we are capable not only of being aware, but we are able to be aware that we are. So uh, for the human being, consciousness is the capability to self-reflect. You can be thinking right now about what I'm talking about right now and looking at how you're thinking about it and considering whether you're paying attention or not, whether it's true or false. We can, you guys gotta love this, think in the subjunctive. Right? This, this is something absolutely not apparent, obvious, in the animal kingdom at all. But we have that. Now, what are we going to call that? So we've kind of done M plus X plus Y. Z, of course. What does Z stand for, though? It's the logos. It's the logos. So our capacity, indeed the means, I think, for our self-reflection, for thinking the subjunctive, for therefore being capable of thinking morally, being response-able, therefore responsible. Um, this is all tied up in language. This is the way we've been made. This is the way we grow up. This is how we express our thinking and share our thinking. This is where the fellowship exists. Now, let's talk about this in a slightly different way. I've reproduced Aristotle's definition here of zoon logon echon, and then I just want to tuck this in while I've got the chance. And that is, I can report this from Aristotle, but you're also hearing this in the way we're talking about ontology. Ontology is a matter of species membership, not of an individual's performance. So uh, I, I have heard, I have heard presentations, people using Aristotle to defend abortion somehow. And, and they talk about Aristotle's notion of actual and potential, and then they apply that to actual human being, potential human being. Um, this is nonsense. That's a very dishonest use of Aristotle. Um, Aristotle's got a whole different thing going on with the actual and potential, and folks who talk like that obviously have never read him. Uh, but what Aristotle does talk about is the human species as the logo species. Now today, what we face is what I call P-property listing, P-property listing, where the basic approach that we grew up with here in society was to have a lineup of potential persons or potential real human beings, right? And then somebody creates a list, things like conscious, rational, <laughs> able to contribute to society or something, and they stack up each individual against that list, and then you know what happens. People who don't match that arbitrary list are put over in this line. 
people who do match that arbitrary list are put over in this line. And you can almost feel this is exactly what's going on at DACA. Right? Arbitrary lists, people either granted or denied their humanity on the basis of, <coughs> of that. That's, of course, what, what was done with abortion. Right? So species membership is a big deal. Then, I'd also just like to tuck this in, and maybe I can plant the seeds to be invited back for a longer ethics and morality presentation that's going on in life. But um, this actually means then that even if a human being is too young, say, in the womb, to exhibit use of language and so forth, she is still, of course, obviously, a member of the human species and therefore has human rights, natural, God-given human rights. Similarly, especially able people or profoundly disabled persons, perhaps because of Alzheimer's, perhaps because of genetic um, problems, and so of course they're human beings. It just so happens that they are, are not enjoying the opportunity to talk and exhibit this as most of us are privileged to do. But your humanity cannot be denied on the basis of performance because it is a matter of species membership. When the Logos became flesh, the Logos became a human being. So this, this is really quite important to get this straight. Yes? Okay, so um, one other point before I leave this slide, and that is, you'll notice that the last 10 minutes I haven't quoted a single Bible passage, except for that round of uh, mention about Christ's incarnation. Ontology can be done without scripture. I don't think it can be well understood without scripture. Also, I'd point out, kind of easing into this, there's nothing in here to contradict scripture. Also, it, it does seem to be informed by God-created things to reproduce according to their kinds, which is pure scripture, straight up. Um, that's what makes this good ontology. But it's, it's real life, either way. So, um, this does line up with Christ, but what I'm doing is, I guess, you See what my philosopher's hat on instead of my pastor's robes on for this one. I think it's worth saying that thoughtful person should see that. Of course, since the 19th century, Western thought has been very busy denying human nature, right? Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, Darwin. That doesn't mean they're right. Take a look at it. Okay, we're still concentrating on logos. So here is a way to talk about the human beings that I think will respect some of the well-taken questions that came up yesterday already. We are logic cops, strictly speaking. So I mentioned that the I-K-O-S, we do it in English at the end of that, is an indication of an adjective. We are not the logos, Christ is the logos, but we are logos-like. Yes? Going back to the previous slide. So the ontology slide? Yeah. Um, with that concept, the Aristotle's understanding tie it together with it. Humanity is not determined by performance, ability to perform, or even potential, but it is by being a member of that species. Yes. Is that consistent? Like, are you going to find that in Plato? The early Greek father philosophers, is that pretty consistent? Determination for and you mentioned the 19th century, but is this is Nietzsche and Marx are they the originators of this stuff, or 
does it start somewhere else in mysticism or somewhere, something like that? Yeah, thanks so much. So actually, to answer that question, here's a good professor trick I'm going to pull on you. We're coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, at least it wasn't red light trick. You didn't answer that Maybe I should have with the rabbinical beard there. We should be doing Hebrew instead. Um, no, but so uh, it's well taken. So the, the deal is that Aristotle would be the most mature form of talking about this because um, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they were kind of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Greek and Western thought. Um, so Aristotle is pulling this all together. Aristotle, by the way, is the source that we have for most of that stuff on Heraclitus I talked about yesterday. Uh, because he, he gives us the quotes and that's how they survive for us to have. So the, the species stuff, though, um, is certainly denied in our day and age, and I would trace the roots of that back to the 19th century. But the 19th century is part of modernity. So starting in 1600 with Descartes and the scientific revolution, this, and uh, the, the gradual disappearing of God in the scriptures from the Western conversation, that's part of the roots of it. But then the part that I promised to get to in this afternoon of it is that this has been an ongoing viral outburst in Western thought, relativism. And that relativism is tied together with a uh, mishandling of human nature that, that we're hearing here. So I would say Aristotle is on course, and Aristotle is the mainstream of thought about the human being up through the medieval. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Well, you know, we, could, we could take a lot of time probably to talk about how some of the church fathers used it. But I'm simply going to say, remember Luther's 1536 disputation concerning the human being or concerning man. And you'll see that the opening propositions in there all set up that Aristotle is right as far as he goes, which is kind of what I just mentioned. Yeah? All right. So pull, pull my feet to the fire. Next session, we'll get to some. Okay, just keep going here. Next slide says Kittle. Yes. So, okay, so Kittle is, um, you can ask your pastor and see if he agrees with this, but I, I would say it's our, it is the major source for word study for the Greek New Testament in the Old Testament today. Um, and then Little Kittle is a one volume rendering of this, what in hard copy would Oh, oh, it's not just a dictionary. <laughs> it's not just a dictionary. Yes, yeah, that's right. Also, my goodness, man. <laughs> um, so, uh, the little kittle, by the way, I, I, I like to recommend. I know we've got some of you who are working at Greek and the electronic versions and so forth of the, the master kittle set are what I tend to describe it. But the little kittle is this single volume thing which is also available electronically, that does all of the Greek words in English alphabet. So even if you're not at home with Greek or not at home with New Testament Greek, we're living in a day and age where the access to this stuff uh, would allow, let's say, just one of my, my normal students who's not a pre-sent person or anything, to check out some of these words. Um, the pastors here, we're not going to trade our education in Greek for anything. And we should keep insisting our pastors are really good. But we can all have access 
So Little Kittle, um, the next next best thing, and it's a quite a step down from Little Kittle, but I think we buy both on by the way. I've talked to the few of you, some of you are using that. There's access to some of the Greek little dictionaries. Is that more like a belonging to language? 
using language. I don't believe I've said speech too much. I'm just looking at your talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's language. This is, speech is being used as a synonym for language. Okay, I just that was personally going to say, I can, I can see professionally and personally why, why you'd be especially attuned to, to the possible sli slide by it. Sometimes but it's, people it's, can speak and some can't. Right. But the ones who can aren't necessarily smarter or more human than the ones who don't. I believe I just said that before. I just say that again, but you want me to speak. Yeah, I get it. I'll say it again, though. Um, you, don't even, you don't even need the, the rich definiteness of scripture on this. You can get it if you're just as wide awake to things as Aristotle was. Species membership. That establishes a person being um, descended from human beings, that's the mark of being a human being. What's the essential characteristic? Logos, language. And uh, just to say it, of course, I haven't said English or German or anything or sign. I, I just said the phenomenon of language. Okay, yeah. Okay, now, uh, this is going to be the last question for right now <laughs> because I, I've got my. Uh, Manager back there is going to remind me I've got to be kind of So we'll take pastors and then you'll allow me to get some more on the table in the question. The term logos is used by the Gnostics. Did they pull that from Heraclitus or did they pull that from the Christians? Do you have any theory? I suppose it depends on which of the Gnostics. Yeah. That's a great question. So the Gnostics, basically, Platonist minded. They don't pay as much attention to logos when you get down to it as we're seeing Aristotle in such a central role. But then, too, in a way, the Gnostic misuse of logos is a testimony to the points I'm making here. Because you have to talk about language in order to, well, be talking about it. Right? And, and in order to talk about knowledge, you need to So I guess that's. I think it's a very engaging question. No more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I also want to tie this in with the image of God. So, my way of doing this is going to be to say, on the basis of the ontology we had looked at, the human being is fundamentally distinguished by language. That's our species identifier. Because of that, there is a different way, or I think maybe a more New Testament way, to talk about the image of God than we usually use. This shows up, by the way, in secular thought, and then in, in some of the Christian thinkers in the medieval ages, by another term, might as well get some Latin out there and score some points with those of you who are working on that right now. Uh, this is the adequatio of the human being, the adequateness of the human being. We are fitted for understanding ourselves and the creation in which we exist. And that's actually because of the image of God. The image of God is not, in, in my professional view, the image of God is not well described as rationality at all. I said yesterday that when Greek terms go into Latin, almost always things are lost. And that's the problem here. However, adequatio will catch the, the notion that we are fitting for things. So, a quick example, again, to push up some questions on this to later. Um, this is what, what Luther was tapping into when he would say things like, um, 
what's the difference between a donkey listening to this sermon and you listening to this sermon? I can preach till I'm blue in the face to a donkey and the gospel's going to have no effect. And then you can almost hear him about to make kind of a snide pastor comment about people not listening in the congregation. But, you know, human beings, human beings are fitted for God's law and gospel coming to us, right? That's, that's because of the love is business. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you think of him? And the son of man that you are concerned about him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. Of course, I'm not going to make the time for it now, but this is amplified by Hebrews 2. The son of man is the human being in Hebrew. How you do an adjective in Hebrew, you make it son of something or daughter of something, right? So a wicked person is a daughter of wickedness. A righteous person is a son of righteousness. A human is son of man. And then Jesus' favorite name for himself during his earthly ministries, you know, was son of man. So Hebrews 2 were reminded about that. We have our identity as human beings in Christ the Son of Man, as uh, G.K. Chesterton said, the everlasting man. Right? So we're, we're kind of getting this from all over the place. Now here too, with the image stuff, let me point out in Genesis 1, God created man in the image of himself. What is that image? Well again, rationality is not going to do it. We have some stuff from, from Chemnitz and the other Lutheran church fathers that go through possible ways to understand the image of God as having to do with God's righteousness, in which case we lose the image of God because of the fall, or having to do with the use of human rationality or humanity, which we don't lose after the fall. Adam and Eve were human before the fall and after. Don't lose sight of your Christology. You don't end up saying that um, Jesus wasn't fully human or something. So, uh, I would come again to the recognition that language is actually the best thing. Then, all of the New Testament passages that identify Jesus as the icon of God, or when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what we're seeing is the image being restored by God himself in the person of Jesus. And you'll notice that he's doing it in language. And you'll notice that he is love, logos. So the theme of logos, I think, should be an important part of our discussion of the image of God also. And, and here that is in a brief form. The image of God, how about a logos form? Now why even think about that? Because John chapter 1 is the New Testament version of Genesis 1 and 2. Plus, but that's, that's what it is, right? Therefore, man is the language species. In other words, each human being is Logicos. I'll emphasize this again since we have some discussion on it. This is regardless of ability or disability. This is our species membership. This is from Martin Heidegger. Why bring up Martin Heidegger? Um, not for his life story, to be sure, but for his thinking. Did you know that Martin Heidegger wanted to be a theologian? In fact, he wanted to teach some particular courses in the theology department. He started off as a university teacher in the 20th century. And he 
he wanted to teach, for instance, on Galatians. Guess what his textbook was? Luther's Commentaries on Galatians. We, we do know, by the way, that Martin Heidegger had a complete Weimar set of Luther's works, and they were marked up. And I could mention conversations that he had with other philosophers who mentioned they were looking at what Luther had said about things. I've got a thesis cooking. Uh, this, if you're not familiar with Heidegger, it's okay. I'm just trying to defend myself a ring here. Um, Martin Heidegger is probably, in his early philosophy, offering a secularized view, I think, of the theology of the cross, if you look at it in a certain way. So anyhow, he's got a lot of attention that he is paying to language. Isn't this a great quote? Yes, it is. Language is the house of the in its home man dwells. Now, let's just linger on this. What I'm doing here is I'm moving from what the language specifically of Scripture is. God breathed, inerrant, this powerful for reproof, correction, training, instructing righteousness stuff that we experience when reading, hearing, thinking about uh, from Genesis to Revelation. That should be the model for how we develop our philosophies or our philosophy of language. So on that take, language, fasten your seatbelt, language overall is means of grace-ish. Language is means of grace which is to say, language is always a means, and it is a lesser, in the fallen world, done by fallen human beings, utilization of the same means, language, by which God has revealed himself to us. Now, another thing here is, we can say things um, about language and use language in certain ways. Uh, but I, I realize that I should probably dwell on that last point just a little bit more, maybe a lot more, so just eventually make a note of the questions you want to ask there. But I am saying that there is a spectrum here. Over on one side, we have the quintessential God-breathed, verbally-inspired logoi, words, of God the Logos, Holy Scripture. On a continuum, we also have you might call everyday natural human language. Natural everyday human language is what it is because of Scripture. And this is true not only in the way God deals with us, but in the way God has created us. That's what I just talked about with the ontology. We are made logos tuned. We are made with that adequatio made that fittedness for the very means by which God has chosen to save us, to keep us in the faith, and so forth. Okay. All right, so a um, quick mention here. I was acutely aware that I got the opportunity to talk to some classic Lutheran thinkers with this. So how many of you are familiar with the three acts of the mind from Aristotle? Okay, well, take a look around. People have their hands up. You may want to talk to them over break and get some more of this. Um, so I'm going to reinforce what you guys already know and love, and I want to make this your possession. I, I have no way to account for why this has not been part of our education growing up. It was not part of mine. Um, 
this should be part of our heritage as people in the West and people who have come to Western culture. Um, so this is based on the stuff we just talked about before. So I do want to um, make a point or two in here. Language is a given. Language is the necessary condition of being human beings. Language is indispensable for brain and cognitive development, just as it is fundamental for our social and ethical development. As I'm coming down to the three acts of the mind, a quick mention of the very sad cases of feral children. I'm talking about children who, um, in the 19th century, I think there were stories, kind of Robin, Robinson Crusoe kind of stories, about children who managed to survive a shipwreck, but marooned, were marooned without adults to talk to and survive that island. Today, our example would be of profoundly abused children who never have any interaction in language. They're just locked in the basement, right? Um, when those children get to a certain age, it's generally in the early teens, there is a point at which, even if they are rescued, they can't be taught language. On the neurocognitive side of things, our best understanding right now is that there are actually regions of the brain that require interaction with language to develop. And if you don't have that interaction, you lose that plasticity and developmental potential for your brain, and you're, you're linguistically handicapped rather severely, you see. So it, over on the neurological side, it's a, kind of an obvious thing that we need language to grow up as human beings. Uh, I tuck this in here. There is an article featuring uh, Noam Chomsky as one of the, the writers called The Mystery of Language Evolution. And I'm just going to call out one comment here. All modeling attempts have been made un on unfounded, have made unfounded assumptions. There is no way, this article is saying, that evolutionary theory can ever account for language. Science cannot account for language. Language is a given. Uh, I would say it's quite obvious that scripture gives us the account of language. Why is there language? Because this is the way God created us. Why did God create us this way? Because in some profound sense that we've been invited to glimpse, this is what he's like. He is best understood as the Logos. See John 1 again. Okay, now about those three acts of minds. First act of the mind. This is true for conversation, for writing, also for writing essays in our philosophy program. Um, in the first act of the mind, we have human understanding, the faculty of our Logos being. Here we deal with terms that are shared for this mutual understanding. This is relevant stuff brothers and sisters. This is really relevant, not just for doing those essays and for thinking and talking about things clearly um, with your Wittenberg Academy colleagues, but for reaching out in society. You have got to find ways to do this. You've got to find ways to share this with other people. As I said yesterday, we are dying. People are actually dying for lack of conversation or capacity to, to engage person to person in talking honestly and truly. Um, so a shared goal is mutual understanding. Think about how important it is if somebody says to you, I love you. I don't do this with my undergrads especially. If somebody says, I love you, um, you may or may not want to say, wait a minute, Schultz said that Aristotle said that we 
have to define our key terms, so what do you mean by love? <laughs> Worst things could happen, though, may I say. Um, you've got to find some way to have that first back-to-the-mind definition conversation, because you know full well that some people are saying, I love you just to get you to sleep. Whereas other people mean by love, well, this is the way God may Adam and Eve. This is Christ and the church stuff. Maybe God is heading us toward that, right? You've got to do the first act of the mind. Second act of the mind, dealing with uh, propositions or statements of fact. Here's where the goal is the truth. Jesus is the incarnate logos, true or false. The, the feeling that you have to judge that to be true or false is part of our linguistic logos-like mind. And then the third act, by the way, just to finish this, is we have to deal with arguments. And here the issue is trustworthiness. So how do we know the claim being made is valid or reasonable? This is where real conversation takes place. Um, I had the chance to do a presentation on three acts in Fort Wayne uh, a few years ago. I think a couple of you may have been there for some of the uh, Lutheran-minded educators. Uh, but I'm glad to share more of this with you to eventually get some of it. And Logos comes into that. This is still more on that. Now, because of those conversations earlier, I'm just going to kind of hurry on here. Time for questions now. I, I've got to say, what can we do for time? We started a little bit late, but maybe you want us to stay right on schedule. Hang on, just a little bit. So I've got 25 until 11. All right, let's go. Uh, five minutes. Five more minutes. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sincere thank you. <laughs> They laughed. I was thinking. <laughs> Please. With all this being said, do you agree that Chomsky's uh, universal grammar would be sort of a natural philosophy and reflection of this same, uh, sort of like a natural discovery of the world? Thanks. What do you think? I was kind of convinced that it was. Yeah, he, he talks, uh, what little I know about him, he talks about an aptness. Or the grammatical verbal stuff. I, so I think so. I think it's, it's catching an obvious feature of things. Um, also, is it okay if we just say Noam Chomsky may or may not be the best linguist to be quoting, but he certainly is the most famous, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah, didn't he know it? Right. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Yeah, I think so. So I think our, our work with uh, grammatical stuff is an exercise of our God-given nature, right? And we know that better than Chomsky. How do you find that conclusion that language can't evolve? Yeah, I'm, thanks. So our question over here is, how did, how did these guys come to the conclusion that evolution won't lead to language? Yeah, evolution can't account for language. Um, you can take a look at the article. This is available online. It's not extraordinarily readable, but the early part is, is kind of. So, um, first of all, I'm just going to mention Chomsky may or may not be the main, it's the most famous name on there. Look, there's quite a list. So, their basic conclusion I may have done you a disfavor by putting some of this in red, that's harder to read um, is that the performance of language can be talked about theoretically by evolutionary minded people, but they never have any valid experimental data to prove their point. Because all the, all, like the, 
example that you use would be um, of a child that doesn't interact, that this this nullifies their ability to even create language at a later date. So, so what you're saying is, oh, what the evidentiary points to is the fact that without language to start from the way of communicating with each other, then there, there is no opportunity for it to Thanks. Now that's a specialized observation. Maybe those of us who are, are seeking to minister to especially able people or, or understand this as therapists. But um, my point would be that's exactly right. But the bigger, I think, easier way to put it is language is a given. Language is a given. So language is not something that can be accounted for as an invention or a development. It's simply always there. And then the sad cases of feral children is something of a demonstration of the critical necessity for language. But as far as I remember, this article doesn't make much about my comment on feral children. Uh, in that line of argument, would you differentiate between language and communication? So what comes to mind is animals seem to be able to communicate, but aren't you making a distinction between Animals uh, to have uh, consciousness and human consciousness? I certainly was making that difference, and I do think it's linguistically evident. So I, I would say that it's. I think that it's not helpful to say animals communicate. Unless, in a, in a shared conversation, we're saying something like, if there's stimulus and response, we'll regard that as communicating. You know, in which case, you can get trees communicate with each other by interchange of um, nutrition or something, you know, to their roots. People have done that. Uh, but no, so I, what I would like to do is this. I, I and I probably, am I talking to a communications prop or something? Oh, okay. Okay. I'm, good, and then I can just get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, was, I was going to say that... Um, my experience with communication has been that, that this area of communication or teaching communications has been all over the map and doesn't have an understanding of the human being and logos to begin with. And I'm just saying it's my experience. So I want to use a better word. And I'm going to say that language is not mere communication, but language is communion. Language is communion. Surely, God's language in the Bible is his communion with us, isn't it? And interestingly enough, especially in the Psalms, the most dialogical, perhaps, of all the books in the Bible, God gives us the words, his words, to commune with him in, our, in the day of trouble and our suffering, for instance, and also our rejoicing. So it's communion. Also, isn't that, isn't that what language does between us and our children and the people that we love and seek to reach? It establishes communion. So that's the word I want to use for language. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't like to give up words, but I'm, I'm inclined to let the notion of communication just stay over the side where it belongs. It's not helping us a lot with love and spirit. Is that fair enough? Thanks. So, this is the backers of the animals. I fear that they Being local 
Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. 
You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.